Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Taeyun Kum for a conversation about Plato's myths. Dr. Kum is Professor, Department of Political Science at UC Santa Barbara, based in the U.S. She specializes in political theory, ancient Greek political thought, and German social thought, and she's author of the monograph, Plato and the Mythic Tradition in Political Thought, which was published by Harvard University Press. Welcome to the call, Taeyun. Thanks, thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Let's start with a uh, broad overview question. Um, to create some context for the conversation. Who was Plato? Yeah, so uh, Plato was an Athenian philosopher. Um, he uh, lived um, from the 5th century to the 4th century BC. And um, uh, he's um, uh, he, he's founded uh, the Academy, which uh, we recognize as um, one of the first uh, institutions uh, for uh, learning, I guess, sort of like universities, um, uh, to use an anachronism. Um, But in the broader context, uh, at least in the popular imagination, he's also credited um, with uh, founding the entire discipline of philosophy itself, um, which in some ways may be an exaggeration, but in some ways not. The academy that he founded, can you speak a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, I don't don't know too much about it. Um, Mm -hmm. He um, uh, had students uh, gather together in uh, in one place. Uh, We know that it was, um, I guess, like north west of the city of Athens. So the uh, where we get the word uh, academy. that's after Plato's Academy, which um, doesn't necessarily mean something like place of higher learning. It's just mm-hmm. the, the place that um, the particular groves that um, that were out that where uh, the Academy uh, physically was. Okay. Um, yeah. Okay. And it's fine if uh, if you're you don't know if this exists, but you, you, you got me thinking about it. Do you know if if there's any remnants of this Academy in, in Athens today? Ooh, completely uh, fine if you don't know i'm just i'm just uh, my mind's wandering right now and i'm interested in that <laughs> i don't know I, I think i would be yeah uh, i don't know okay Sorry. no problem yeah yeah it's not inside of the uh the historical context of this of this conversation okay how do scholars know about him and his writings uh, well um plato uh, wrote um these philosophical works that we refer to as uh, the dialogues and um, they were preserved um, uh, we think by uh, Islamic so they were preserved in um, in Greek forms and then they got um, uh, Islamic scholars uh, eventually were responsible for preserving them um, uh, during periods where uh, Plato wasn't read as much um and uh the big uh uh discovery uh rediscovery of plato would have been kind of like in like the early renaissance um and uh when people uh learned greek to uh to uh, read these these dialogues and um started translating them into latin so the uh, Marsilio Ficino's um, mm-hmm. Latin translation of Plato's um, 
uh, complete works uh, was like a pivotal turning point for um, getting people to to read Plato in uh, the so-called Western world. The Islamic scholars, out of curiosity, mm-hmm. was that the Ottoman Empire or a different group? No, so they would have been um, quite before. And uh, um, we can talk about how, um, so there's this commonplace that Plato was sort of like lost to uh, the Western like European uh, intellectual world during the Middle Ages, but um, sort of like complicating the view that Plato was at any point ever lost is um, uh, the fact that uh, even after the fall of Rome, there were um, uh, people in the Byzantine Empire who were still continuing to read and uh, study Plato. And then uh, these philosophers from the, I guess, like the Islamic world. um, And this would have, and this really would have flourished around, I guess, like um, the 800s to uh, like the thousands AD. Okay, so what did he write about? If you can maybe create an overview of his corpus of work. Uh, sure. Um, so, uh, so the one historical context that uh, we should be um, mindful of is that uh, Plato was a student of um, a, a different philosopher named Socrates, but Socrates memorably did not write anything down, whereas Plato did. Um, so we uh, know... Uh, about Socrates um, in large part through Plato as well as some other uh, authors say like Xenophon who wrote about um, Socrates um, and uh, a lot of Plato's dialogues uh, feature Socrates as a character uh, going around uh, Athens um, and uh, having conversations with uh, uh, random interlocutors uh, uh, often these are sort of uh, experts uh, in their respective fields of knowledge. Um, so say there's a dialogue called Ion, and Ion is a rhapsode who's uh, the, the greatest, uh, I guess, dramatic interpreter of Homer um, of his generation, or so he claims, uh, or he goes around um, interrogating sophists, who are these uh, people who are... Uh, also have claims to knowledge and he would say okay you you claim that you have knowledge uh, let, let us test the limits of your knowledge and um yeah, he uh um and he would talk to these experts about um like uh topics uh like justice or piety or courage and he would approach uh these people who claim to be experts or sometimes they're not experts say okay um this thing that you've mentioned uh piety you what is this thing can you define it for me and um and people would offer provisional definitions that Socrates would uh, start to fall apart um start to tear apart um and uh yeah um so we can divide Plato's works into uh or the, Plato's works are traditionally divided into early, middle, and late works. Okay. And um, uh, the early works tend to feature Socrates um, doing more prominently doing that sort of thing, going around um, asking people, like, what do you think X is? Um, and uh, uh, to put it crudely, just uh, uh, tearing apart all the definitions that are given to him. Um, uh, the middle dialogues, um, we think, uh, offer 
um, Socrates offering a more positive account of um, uh, the things that are under investigation. So the the Republic, uh, for instance, uh, are classed in uh, that middle, the middle period of mm -hmm. um, uh, Plato's writings. And this is also where we um, scholars think that uh, Plato is offering uh, philosophies that are potentially more his own than Socrates. Um, and um, yeah, so the things that we associate with Plato's philosophy um, uh, are uh, um, a metaphysical system that we call the theory of the forms. And it's this mm -hmm. idea that the, um, uh, the ideas or kind of templates we have for things uh, that transcend the physical realm are somehow more real than the things that uh, are in the physical realm. Um, so I'm happy to talk more about that. But these mm -hmm. are uh, the theory of the forms becomes more uh, prominent in um, the middle uh, dialogues. And um, okay. in the late dialogues, you see Socrates disappearing a little. And sometimes you um, get dialogues where Socrates isn't featured at all. Okay. Do you think at that, so he's going through his life, he's, he's writing. Do you think he knew there was three distinct um, sections of uh, how he wrote or how he thought? Or is that something that scholars look back on and compartmentalize? Yeah, the latter. And, um, and there, there is disagreement over where we place certain dialogues. Sure. So like the, the chronology is something that like scholars debate like whenever you try to create a neologism about a period in the past or try to even just create a, a period right it's uh you get into those those debates very easy on where the line should be drawn <laughs> okay so what's known about his uh so you mentioned some things about what he was doing and you also mentioned that uh socrates socrates was in his life at some point right that's how he had an ability to write about him okay um, what's known about his uh, voc vocation? Like, what was his career? What would he consider himself to have been doing in it during his career? Plato. Mm -hmm, yes. Yeah. Um, so Plato was born into a very aristocratic family, um, uh, and this is where he, the the sources can get spurious. But um, uh, according to one account. Um, mm -hmm. Plato, in fact, wanted to be a, uh, a tragedian, uh, a playwright. Um, okay. And uh, according to this account, he uh, uh, met Socrates and then he went home and burned all his, all his works because um, that meeting with Socrates was so transformative and what he wanted to do instead was write philosophy. Um, and uh, beyond that, we don't know too much. There's a, a, a work called The Seventh Letter um, that... Uh, there's there's some not significant disagreement over whether it was indeed a, a platonic work, um, but there he uh, uh, it's a slightly autobiographical account of him uh, going over uh, to um, uh, to to advise a king, um, and uh, and like that sort of not working out, um, and uh, and he found it. The academy um so i think uh in later life that became his central thing okay um can you speak about um myth mythology so how mythology 
shows up in Plato's writings. Yeah, right. So um, uh, Plato's dialogues are um, they're works of philosophy, but they're also extremely rich uh, at a literary level. Um, and uh, you, the myths come up because uh, every now and then you're going to have like, um, like philosophical investigation over say the nature of justice, and all of a sudden Socrates might pause. Socrates, the character in Plato's dialogue, might pause and say, well, let me tell you a story. And um, mm. uh, these myths, or uh, sometimes these myths are offered by Socrates' interlocutors, uh, but these myths are, uh, there are several kinds. Um, some are myths that seem to uh, draw from the pre-existing Greek mythological tradition. Um, so uh, the myth of metals, for instance, um, in uh, book three of the Republic, which is also called the noble lie, is this sort of like remixing of um, the kind of like the the myth of Cadmus with the Hesiodic myth of metals. Um, uh, so and uh, some other myths um, say like and the the allegory of the cave um, mm-hmm. in book seven of the Republic are uh, is looks more like Plato just invented uh, a, a great deal more instead of uh, drawing from uh, the mythological sources. When do they start to show up myths in his writings? Uh, and we, you know, using the three three stages of his writings, um, were, mm-hmm. myth, were myths showing up in that first earlier stage? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so uh, I think the myths show up in what people would... Um, uh, class as the kind of like early middle uh, period yeah. Yeah. onward. Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. Um, and so in that early stage, um, and I'm going to get, at some point I'm going to ask, it's probably too early to ask, but at some point might as well just put it out there and we can visit at some point about if there's patterns in any of his writings on, on myths, what you've found. Um, yeah. but I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to go there yet. Um, in that early stage, can you speak a little bit more about what myths myths he was writing, whether he was curating what he heard or myths that he uh, supposedly um, created him, himself? Yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm trying to run through them. Um, yeah, yeah. You are getting myths that he uh, wrote himself, but um, I should say that he's not... Um, sometimes there are references to... Um, existing myths uh, that uh, Socrates would like allude to or be like, oh, remember the story of so-and-so. Mm. But um, the myths are, uh, even when they are, he is remixing um, or like, uh, or referencing uh, a pre-existing mythological tradition, he, uh, the myths are quite original. And, and that seems to be a constant throughout. Uh, so uh, even the, uh, the rather early myths um, so the uh, the Phaedo, which is the dialogue that features the, the death of Socrates, ends with this um, eschatological myth about judgment in, in the afterlife. And that's uh, an interesting theme that I think he uh, returns to uh, a few more times. So there, uh, sometimes these myths are grouped together. Um, there's the myth at the end of the Phaedo, the myth at the end of the Gorgias, and the myth at the end of the Republic. And all three of these myths are somehow myths about 
what happens to the soul um, uh, after death. And they, uh, in all three of them, they're sort of like judged for uh, their deeds uh, uh, in life, whether they were just or unjust. Um, and there's usually some sort of retributive <laughs> elements that they're like punished for uh, their injustice or rewarded for their justice. Um, and um, yeah, the 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 Fido has uh, a, quite a rich uh, vision of what the afterlife looks like. Then um, uh, the Gorgias, which I think would be chronologically uh, uh, the next a later uh, myth, um, uh, has something similar. Uh, the Republic, mm-hmm. which uh, it could potentially be later. Um, uh, is interesting because uh, it adds a reincarnation element. Okay, so let's um, let's take the the myth about the judgment um, after life as an ex- as an example. So, can you expand on that myth a little bit? You shared some stuff, which was good, but can you expand on it a little bit so someone can uh, understand what that myth was? And um, and is it believed that he invented the myth, or do scholars believe that he is um, curating the, the 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 myth and would have uh, heard it elsewhere? Yeah. Um, so uh, I, I can tell you about the myth at the end of the Republic. Um, the myth sure. of Earth. Yeah. Um, this is the story. Is that there was this great warrior or uh, who died in battle um, and uh, they put him on his funeral pyre uh, and um, and then he uh, er, in fact had this dream vision um, he went up to the afterlife um, and uh, he saw that he joined all the souls that were uh, making a similar journey in the afterlife uh, there's this sort of long queue uh, where everyone's waiting to be judged and uh, and then the judges will uh, decide uh, whether or not they've been just or unjust in their lives. And there are four uh, holes in the place of judgment. Uh, so there are two holes um, uh, leading up to the heavens above and uh, two holes uh, leading to uh, some sort of underworld. Um, and there are people coming back from heaven after having finished their journeys and people coming uh, coming back from the underground passage, having finished their journeys. And so it's this like loop. Um, and uh, they souls uh, take uh, one of these holes, uh, depending on whether they've been just or unjust. So the heavenly path, if they've been just, the um, underground passage, if uh, they haven't been just, and they experience a thousand years of um, either punishments and horrible sights if uh, if they went to the underground path and um, just a thousand years of delightful, uh, pleasant things to look at if, uh, mm. if you've been just. Um, and uh, after a thousand years, they come back through those other holes uh, uh, in the sky and, then, um, and on the earth, and then they reunite, and then they are taken to uh, see the spindle of necessity that holds the cosmos together. Um, and then this is sort of like part two of the myth, where uh, they're taken to a place where they, uh, they're told that they can choose the patterns of the lives that they're going to be born into in their next life. Um, and there's some sort of 
uh, all sorts of contingent factors as to uh, how you can make the best choice. Um, is the, the, the number of patterns that are available when it's your turn to choose and uh, your turn to choose is chosen by, by lot. Um, and uh, lots of people make silly choices. And um, here Socrates interjects to say, this is really important. You need to recognize what uh, a truly philosophical life looks like. And um, at that moment of choosing, you need to be able to recognize the philosophical life or uh, the best <laughs> life pattern that's available to you um, at that moment of choosing and choose that instead of things that look fancy uh, but are in fact not good lives um, and uh, the souls choose their lives and uh, um, they're, uh, they drink from uh, the river of Lita and uh, their memories are sort of cleared and then they're reborn like shooting stars into uh their next lives and air wakes up on his funeral pyre and says oh yeah that was all a dream but this is a vision that had been given to me as a message for me to send out uh, to to my fellow human beings so when he writes uh when he wrote a myth like that so when mm -hmm. when um when you're when you're reading about something that he wrote like that is he framing it like here here here's the um, here's the tale or the story. Mm -hmm. Is he ever, um, is there ever any sign that he's citing that this is something he invented versus is just something that's out there? You know what I'm getting at? Is it like, does he make it clear when it's something that, um, he's inventing versus, mm -hmm. uh, uh, something that it just, just is in existence at that point in time in this, uh, period of time in, in 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 history and and as part of that too um do you think he believes uh the myths that he's writing yeah um no these are all really great questions um uh it, it sort of like depends on on the myth but a lot of the time um uh and again we have to remember that it's not you know plato writing these dialogues saying like i plato am presenting you with a a comprehensive theory of uh, justice. Um, it's uh, this dramatic thing where Socrates is talking to people, and uh, and is, say in the case of um, uh, many of these myths, Socrates presents them as things that he picked up somewhere, but uh, things that he uh, often picked up from elsewhere that are not necessarily Athens, because they're sort of like, well, we know the Athenian myths, so. Uh, what is this new myth that um, you're telling us? And he would uh, sometimes present them as, say, like a Phoenician story, or mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. this is a, a tale from Egypt. Um, but at other times, say, uh, in the case of the allegory of the cave, um, uh, the character of Socrates would be quite straightforward about, um, let us imagine, um, uh, take this image, um, and uh, let me elaborate elaborate it for you. Yeah, okay. Um, can you expand? Do you, do you want to share the allegory of the cave? You've mentioned that a couple times. Yeah, sure. So the allegory of the cave is, I think, one of the most famous images of uh, philosophy um, uh, ever constructed. Um, and it's uh, a story that... Um, Plato tells uh, at the beginning of Book 7 of the Republic, 
and um, he presents it to his interlocutors as an image of education and uh, uh, its lack in in the soul. Um, and um, uh, he tells his interlocutors to imagine uh, a cave uh, where uh, there are prisoners who are uh, shackled um, inside it and they're in a way uh, so that they're made to face the, the back of the cave, the, the cave wall. Um, and uh, <laughs> there are um, quite specific details as to like how the cave is set up, but um, the point is that the prisoners uh, see shadows reflected on, um, uh, shadows cast on the cave wall and uh, echoes that bounce um, from the cave wall. And Socrates says if they've been like this from birth, they've never known any other uh, kind of existence, wouldn't they look at the shadows and think that the shadows are reality? And uh, at some point, Socrates says, and then uh, let's imagine one of these prisoners somehow managing to break free and being taken away uh, so that he's forced to scale the scale the wall and uh, eventually exit the cave and uh, see uh, like real things like trees and mm. the sun. Um, mm. And at first he would resist uh, thinking of these things as uh, things that are the, the real objects that were casting the shadows in the cave. But eventually his eyes would uh, adjust and um, he would uh, wake up to this new reality and then, um, and then he speculates that um, he, this free prisoner might then feel sorry for his fellow prisoners um, and he would go down uh, back into the cave to sort of share what he had seen and the other prisoners wouldn't believe him and uh, would laugh at him for uh, um, not being able to you know, like look at the shadows uh, and recognize them as well anymore and eventually they would, they would kill him. Is there a, do you believe there's a distinction between, um, and that one is framed as an allegory, so, so that's, yeah. right? But is there a difference between, do you believe, an allegory and a myth? Yeah, so uh, I think traditionally an allegory is um, uh, something where you have a, a pretty, like, direct one-to-one connection between, uh, like, what does the story that's being told and what kind of like the moral is behind it or what, uh, why the story is being told. Uh, the allegory of the cave um, is a bit more complicated and I think it is more, and uh, scholars might disagree um, on this, uh, but the allegory of the cave is more myth-like in that there are these like very excessive details um, uh, in the myth that uh, do a lot to conjure up this like, other world um and they're also kind of like uh mythic tropes like um it's like story patterns that are quite characteristic of myths like i mentioned the myth of Ur earlier you the whole thing is framed in terms of like this guy falling asleep having this great vision and then uh, waking up um and this notion of like sleeping and waking or kind of like dreaming and waking, uh, that language also quite um, uh, prominently permeates uh, the allegory of the cave. So um, the cave dwellers are like, well, it's the reality that they see, isn't it? Like, 
isn't it more the stuff of dreams and you when you're delivered from this underground place to this world above isn't that like you waking up into uh, what is like truly real in the world okay so if you were um when you think about all of his his works uh Taeyeon, mm-hmm. so his his corpus yeah. um mm-hmm. if you were to estimate how many of how many distinct myths would you estimate show up in his in his works and what percent do scholars believe he's he invented myths himself versus curating and where do you and can you elaborate on where you, where scholars would draw the line between looking at something that he did and, and saying that that's an invented myth versus a, a curated one um yeah, so uh, I, I really don't have a neat number off the top of my head. I really should. Okay, but yeah, um, yeah. I would say Plato's myths number around like a dozen, um, definitely no more than two dozen. Okay. Um, and uh, it's really important that we clarify that uh, all the myths that we think of as Plato's myths are Plato's uh, own inventions, or that's what uh, scholars um, like agree on. Um, uh so we can think of him uh, maybe like curating mythological content only to the extent that he's sort of like taking uh, pre-existing mythological material, like I don't know, like certain like existing deities or um, like certain like story patterns, um, and he's sort of like remixing them into the the myths that he's inventing. Um, so like say uh, the um, the myth of metals in the Republic, for example, it, uh, sort of like draws from like Hesiodic uh, myths uh, about. The, the ages of man and uh, kind of like uh, myths about autochthony um, in the founding of Thebes. Um, but he is sort of like inventing them uh, for his own purposes. Um, and in that way, we can sort of like distinguish Plato, uh, Plato's myth writing from those of say like Hesiod or like certain uh, tragic uh, authors who would uh, take existing mythological stories and just sort of like retell them um, uh, in, in sort of like the way you would stage uh, a play of uh, something that already exists, um, whereas Plato is definitely uh, inventing his own things. And we can also ask sort of complicated questions about, um, especially in the dialogues featuring Socrates, um, uh, how faithful Plato is in sort of like recording an actual conversation that Socrates had, but these are uh, relatively smaller questions and um, scholars do think of Plato as having invented his own myths. Yeah, so when he's referencing uh, Socrates, mm-hmm. for for instance, and, and something yeah. like the allegory of the cave, so what yeah. do scholars believe in that case? Uh, do they believe that he invented that that myth, or do they believe um, Socrates uh, I- invented it and and uh, you know shared it and and Plato then learned it and and wrote about it? Yeah, um, this is this is a great question, and it is an open question because we we really don't know all that much about the historical Socrates. Um, uh, beyond what uh, we learned from what Plato wrote and uh, some of his contemporaries wrote uh, about, like Socrates, um, but generally, uh, if we set aside the story issue of like where do we draw the boundary between um, Plato, uh, what Plato's thinking and what uh, so the, what Plato was putting in the mouth of the character Socrates that he casts in his dialogues and um, what Socrates actually said, um, Plato. Uh, scholars do think of this as sort of like Plato uh, 
having his own agenda and Plato in particular being a particular um like prose stylist so Socrates famously wrote nothing down whereas like Plato's prose is very very beautiful um and uh like very finished uh, so if you uh like read plato's myths you can really like appreciate how how beautifully constructed they are and like we think of that as like, okay like at least the person doing that kind of literary crafting um is likely to be plato okay can you speak uh about his political writings and how mythology played a part in his writings on political theory yeah, sure. So um, uh, I'll mention the uh, the other myth in the Republic that I haven't talked about, um, and that's uh, the the myth of metals. Or so I mentioned it earlier as um, uh, a myth where Socrates, um, uh, it, the character of Socrates, seems to tell a story where um, that's sort of like revives these uh, re- remixes uh, these ancient pre-existing ancient uh, Greek myths. Um, and uh, that, I think, is, is scholars take as sort of like one of Plato's most uh, overtly political myths. Um, and it's also uh, the most notorious one because he uh, tells a, so he's setting up, so the Republic is a dialogue uh, that, among other things, imagines um, an ideal city. Um, and uh, in this ideal city, Socrates starts interest- introducing uh, uh, an effectively a caste system where you have um, some people uh, uh, who are consigned to do kind of like uh, the farm work and the handicrafts, um, some people who uh, are consigned to do uh, to be warriors and uh, some who are meant to be uh, educated to be philosophers who eventually also rule over the city and um, that, uh, according to the Republic, is um, what a truly just city looks like. And um, while they're setting up, while they're in the middle of setting up the city, um, uh, Socrates says, okay, we, um, uh, how do we convince people that they should do the work that they're uh, consigned to do? Um, and uh, Socrates is a bit hesitant, but then he's like, well, so I've, I've heard of this thing. It's actually a, a Phoenician thing. Um, but I think uh, this might be the, this might be the way to do it. And, um, and he tells this myth uh, that uh, some people, so all the citizens in the, uh, in the city uh, were, in fact, crafted under the earth. Um, and uh, and a god put uh, bits of metals into their souls while they were being forged. So some people had bits of gold in them, some people bits of silver, and others had um, iron and bronze. And when the work was finished, the um, the god that created them brought them up above, um, uh, into the world above. Um, and the idea is that the, uh, the people with gold in their souls are philosophers, so they should be um, uh, the philosopher ruling people. Uh, the iron and bronze people are like craftsmen and farmers. And the idea is that this is, uh, it naturalizes um, uh, the proper places that they're consigned to in society. And um, I guess, moreover, the, if uh, bronze children are born to golden parents, then the children should 
uh, uh, be I guess demoted in the in the caste system, um, and and vice versa. Um, so that's the myth, and um, and uh, people think that that's like uh, Plato using a myth uh, for purportedly philosophical purposes, or um, mm-hmm. Plato using a myth um, for the purposes of um, in this quite cynically instrumental way to um, uphold the status of the philosophers um, in the city. Um, so how were, because there's probably other ones too that he wrote about um, in his political writings, right? When, mm-hmm. it, when it came to myths. How were his political, um, how were the myths in his political writings received by the state? Yeah, so uh, the, the short answer is that we don't know. Um, okay. And um, uh, as far as we can tell, um, Plato himself doesn't, uh, uh, unlike um, other many other Greek authors, memorably, unlike, say, Socrates, who was executed uh, by uh, the Athenian state for doing his thing, uh, Plato seems to have been um, uh, reasonably comfortable and not persecuted. Um, uh, as for the the myths, we we don't we don't really know, and I can speculate a little on mm-hmm. um, what happens afterward. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but uh, it seems that I guess for three generations after Plato died, um, uh, the academy, so the um, the school that Plato founded, um, was uh, um, uh, went in a slightly um, mystical direction, and um, uh, and then that changes quite abruptly uh, as um, uh, Plato's school, the academy, starts emphasizing the more skeptical aspects of uh, Plato's thinking. Um, so the the I guess the Socratic spirit of um, Socrates going around and uh, questioning uh, traditional knowledge, um, and that skeptical. Uh, for the skeptical uh, body of um, of followers of Plato, uh, the myths would not have done much for them because there are these like radical skeptics who are like, no, we must um, question all inherited forms of knowledge. Um, we uh, they they want to deny the coherence of Plato's metaphysical system. Um, uh, so, I guess. Uh, myths that try to present uh, holistic accounts of um, Plato's forms, or Plato does often uh, talk about the forms in slightly mystical ways, and um, uh, this this skeptical branch of uh, Socrates' followers uh, wouldn't have been, um, wouldn't have found this uh, especially uh, conducive to the kind of Plato that they, they uh, wanted to emphasize. Um, I guess in the early Renaissance the, is when Plato's myths become uh, welcomed uh, in this very like humanist landscape where people uh, emphasize rhetoric and beauty, and the myths are received as these um, as these very like beautiful things that might contain uh, divine truths that in this very like Christianized mm-hmm. landscape, divine truths that may have inspired the, the divine Plato. So a point of clarification then, um, was his writings during his life, 
what was the uh was there any major contention uh by the state against his writings during his life were they were, were they somewhat in, ambivalent indifferent was there hostility was there were they adopted where would you kind of peg uh, how the state adopted uh, or, or responded to his his writings, including the the myths. Yeah, um, uh, yeah, we we don't know. Um, okay. but it seems that they uh, were um, uh, uh, they were there. Um, uh, people's they seem to have had circulation, um, and uh, um, and uh, by this point, uh, the. Plato's school also helped sort of institutionalize um, uh, the, uh, the the reading and um, perhaps the performance uh, of these dialogues. Um, and uh, scholars, I think, are also quite interested in like the rise of literacy during uh, kind of like Plato's time. Um, so uh, Plato would have. Uh, sorry, one of my neighbors is there. No, it's okay. Don't worry. It's a it's a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it happens. <laughs> so so uh, yeah, sorry, um, yeah. So people, um, there's a more new scholarship emphasizing how um, Plato did write his dialogues um, uh, to be presented as kind of like written things that are read by his contemporary uh, contemporary readers and um, and. Uh, again, the, the, there's a lot that we don't know, but um, mm-hmm. it, it, they seem to have had success insofar as uh, they were circulated and uh, widely received. Um, emeritus professor uh, Oswin Murray was uh, on the show in the past. We chatted about Herodotus, some of Herodotus's mm-hmm. writings, and uh, myths myths start to come up in Herodotus's writings mm-hmm. as well. So, do you believe this was um, a function of the times at this? At, you know, in this period of history where there was a lot of writings about mythology. And do you think that um, Plato was using the writings of myths as a literary device to some degree, like like using it as a utility to fulfill on a purpose, some other purpose that he was trying to fulfill on with his writings? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. So um, I'll take the first part. Yeah, mm-hmm. so this was a time when... Um, I guess like a generation before Plato, and certainly around the time of um, Herodotus, um, Herodotus onward, uh, is when um, Plato's uh, predecessors um, in philosophy, known as kind of like the pre-Socratic philosophers, um, started um, uh, taking a very like critical stance, um, but also kind of like playing with the tropes of uh, myth. Um, and uh, often this was, um, so Herodotus um, makes a distinction between myth and sort of like the, the history that he's writing. Um, and uh, it, and um, it also in the pre-Socratic philosophers, we start getting this rhetoric around uh, effectively saying, okay, um, myths are these just so stories. And if like people just sort of believe them, it's, um, there's no questioning them. There's sort of like no accountability for if like someone tells you a myth and you're like, okay, but is that actually how the world is? Um, and uh, these pre-Socratic philosophers uh, started positioning this sort of like proto-scientific uh, study that they were trying to um, elevate as uh, somehow being um, 
superior to uh, mythic modes of um, explanation. And um, Plato was definitely someone who inherited that tradition. And, um, and that tradition is uh, sort of like this rich tradition where they're sort of like critiquing myth, but also like playing with it. And um, that's what uh, Plato is doing by um, at some level saying, okay, here is um, uh, this philosophy that uh, philosophy, as I understand it, is has to be held to standards of certain standards of rigor, um, the kind that we see in portrayals of the Socratic method, where um, Socrates wants you know, his interlocutors to be uh, be held accountable for the things that they said and to have no contradictions in um, uh, between things that they said before and things that they're saying later. And the myths, uh, notably, don't do that because they're you know, like these like sudden just so stories that enter the dialogues and uh, Plato is definitely playing with that tension and um, in some ways uh, offering kind of like a new genre of um, philosophical myth uh, that is different from the, the myths that he grew up with um, and yeah definitely like Plato is using uh, this as a literary device for uh, a number of uh, different purposes um, some are kind of like uh, <laughs> sorry, we're gonna get into like a whole uh, uh, sc- uh, scholarly tangle over exactly what the myths are doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, all, all good. Yeah, go go down there as much as you can, and you know, cir- circumscribe it as as needed for the sake sake of time. You can summarize as well. Yeah. So there's um. Uh, so. Uh, I guess we'll just flag that Socrates uses different myths for different purposes. Um, uh, but there is no... Um, uh, so sometimes um, scholars think that... Or there's a way of interpreting the myths as, okay, like Socrates has worked out these uh, perfect philosophical ideas already, and uh, he will just tell you a myth um, to... Uh, make it more memorable or uh, uh, as a kind of like teaching tool um, uh, or uh, s- there's a way of reading the myths as kind of like rhetoric um, sort of in that vein but for uh, for people who didn't catch the philosophical arguments so there are these um, uh, so if you're reading a platonic dialogue and uh, Plato has oops, the character of Socrates is giving you uh, a defense of justice and why it is uh, uh, a philosophical defense of justice and an argument for why one should be just. If you kind of miss the philosophical mm. argument, here's like a like a nice myth at the end. Right, to, uh, right. Uh, yeah, like to an... convince you to be just so that you're you know, fearful of what will happen to you in the afterlife. Um, and there's also uh, even a school of thought that would read uh, at least some of the myths as sort of like subversive commentary on the philosophical project. So, uh, for instance, um, I mentioned the the myth of her, uh, the myth of her, the fact that the Republic ends with this weird myth has been greatly troubling for lots of scholars, uh, in part because people think that the Plato's having to recourse uh, to telling a story is potentially him kind of like giving up on providing ending with the philosophical argument and having to admit that maybe it's just the case that some people have to be convinced by this inferior rhetoric 
um, of like punishments and rewards in the afterlife. Uh, or um, some people think that uh, the fact that it ends with a myth is like a subversive commentary on the impossibility of the entire philosophical project. So there are uh, a variety of interpretations. The one that I like uh, alongside many others is that he is doing kind of like philosophical work in the myths themselves. So it's not um, it's not the case that he the myths are for the non-philosophers and the philosophical arguments are for the philosophers, but somehow the the myths help the philosophers as well, his philosophical readership. Yeah, one of the things you said reminds me of when someone's communicating something like a lesson and then they create an analogy afterwards yeah. to, to help get the communication across. Yeah. Um, you're a political theorist. You specialize in your research area predominantly is in ancient Greek political thought and German social thought. What uh, has interested you in those two areas for so many years? Yeah, um, yeah. I think I uh, I fell in love with Plato, um, and uh, that was my entry into um, ancient Greek uh, stuff, um, and. Uh, uh, the German uh, German social that I sort of fell into as I was um, I got more interested in uh, Plato's myths and I guess the um, the particularly fraught relationship from uh, the concept of myth has uh, seemed to have with uh, the the discipline of philosophy uh, over the course of its history and um, it's uh, especially in the German tradition uh, German intellectual tradition where that uh, fraught relationship has been explored uh, the most. Um, so that's um, how I came to the German stuff. Thank you for coming on the show today, Tayan, and sharing your expertise on this topic. Of course. Uh, thank you for having me. <laughs> so again, everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Kohn authored, Plato and the Mythic Tradition in Political Thought, I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Taeyun and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.